Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And now, the list of things that you can buy at the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com. Things to wear like Chicago Reader hats, t-shirts, bandanas, and face masks. Things for your daily life like the Chicago Reader camping mug, Chicago Reader tote bags, and a Chicago Reader reporter's notebook. Things for you to read like our Reader recipes, the Chicago Reader 420 Companion, our Chicago Reader Best of book series from journalist Maya Dukmasova, Mike Sula, Ben Jarofsky, and Lior Galil, the Chicago Reader coloring book, and the Chicago Reader stay home puzzle. Find the Chicago Reader store at chicagoreader.com and show your support for the nation's first free weekly news paper since 1971. Most time to Ben Jarofsky show as I speak. It is Friday, April 28th, 2023. Here's a headline in the uh, Sun-Times to give you a sense of what's going on in the world before we have our conversation. I've already talked about this at length uh, on my Friday show. I urge everybody to check that out. We took the deep dive on this topic. But I'm just utterly obsessed with this story right now. Really, it's I missed it when it was going on in real time. And that's probably why I am uh, so obsessed with it. Here we go with the headline in the Sun-Times. Jerry Springer, host of wild and wildly successful Chicago talk show, dies at 79. I love that headline uh, on many for many reasons, as I pointed out earlier today. It's a, it is so funny. Uh, Chicago's, uh, Chicago's insecurity is always on display. Uh, and so they feel uh, <laughs> compelled to let everybody know that Jerry Springer uh, had a successful Chicago talk show. First of all, that's inaccurate. The show wasn't a Chicago talk show. Mine is a Chicago talk show, okay? Jerry Springer happened to have his studio in Chicago. It's the middle of the country. I guess it was easier to fly people from either coast. We That's the only reason it was in Chicago. But, like, Chicagoans are like... He was among us. He walked among us. I saw him in the Trader Joe's once. <laughs> you guys are so insecure. That second city, it's no joke. No. Meanwhile, absent from the front page is any mention of Donald Trump's rape trial in New York City. I guess it's because the accuser, E. Jean Carroll, there's no Chicago connection. If there was anything remotely resembling a Chicago connection to E. Jean Carroll, it would be headline. Chicago and accuses Trump of rape. The most important thing in a sentence, not that the president that you elected, MAGA, uh, has been accused of rape, and it's pretty compelling testimony. Just want to say, MAGA. No, the most important thing is the person accusing him is from Chicago. She walked among us. She's a Chicagoan. <laughs> Come on, Chicagoans. I've lived here since 1981. Please join me in agreement. You have to agree. You are pathetic, Chicago. Okay? <laughs> Your needs matter. It does not matter that Jerry Springer's talk show uh, was in Chicago. What matters, in my humble opinion, and what I readily admit I was late to realize, is that Jerry Springer opened the way for Donald Trump. It is so obvious to me. What really kills me is that Jerry Springer, 
is a lefty. He's a new, he's like a New Deal Democrat. Like he once briefly ran for governor, or I think it was governor or senator of Ohio, and he was running like on a Bernie Sanders healthcare platform. He was like as lefty as I was. He just stumbled into this career of running this geek show that made him a fortune. He had eight million daily viewers, ladies and gentlemen. We just made a big deal about Tucker Carlson at Fox getting fired with his three million. Hello, I could do the math. Eight million is more than three million. He was bigger than Tucker Carlson. And he was a lefty. He was a Democrat. Donald Trump stole uh, all of his shtick from wrestling and Jerry Springer. And he turned it into the Donald Trump show, which I think cultists, MAGA cultists, love the show. You know, they just overlooked the rape, <laughs> the theft, the graft, you know, the bullying, all the like the, like the, the seamy side of Donald Trump that anybody else would be in prison right now. Uh, for uh, doing the things he's done. They overlooked that because they just loved the show. And he stole it all from Jerry Springer. If only, if only, if only the Dems had been paying attention to Jerry Springer. Nope, but Donald Trump was, and the rest is history. All right, without further ado, I'm going to ask my distinguished guest to introduce himself, and we'll take it away with our conversation. Go ahead, distinguished guest. Thanks, Ben. It is great to be back. Uh, I'm David. I'm sorry, I have a baby brain. What's my name again? Uh, I'm, I'm David Ferris. I'm an associate professor of political science at Roosevelt University. I am a grown-up with grown-up things that I do. Uh, I'm the author of It's Time to Fight Dirty, um, How Democrats Can Build a Lasting Majority American Politics, columnist at Newsweek and The Week. Um, and uh, yeah, my favorite Jerry Springer tidbit, Ben, um, is that uh, he had to resign from the Cincinnati city council because he solicited a prostitute and then he was appointed as the mayor for like a one-year term as part of some weird power sharing agreement i don't really understand but it's uh, it's notable that the prostitution solicitation preceded his time as cincinnati mayor so yes it did that's and he was talk about prefiguring about donald trump here you know so oh yes so glad you mentioned that uh i don't want to repeat the, the deep dive that i already did on jerry springer but uh this is he had a like a again Trump stole everything from Springer, so he had kind of a Trump sense of humor, but really Trump had a Springer sense of humor, uh, and uh, so um, where did he say about the prostitution? Uh, okay, here he goes. So he got caught because he wrote a check to the prostitute. Okay, <laughs> he, put, <laughs> he put it in writing. So uh, when he was uh, reelected, one of his comeback speeches. Uh, nodded to the prostitution controversy, saying, a lot of you don't know anything about me, but I'll tell you one thing you should know. My credit is good, which I think is absolutely hilarious. Uh, that <laughs> all that matters is that his credit is good. Uh, and I will, here's his, uh, I will close with this, David, and get your thoughts on this before we move on to the really important things at Pan. Uh, this is a commencement speech he gave at Northwestern, uh, and there had been protests from students that he was not worthy of a Northwestern diploma. I don't know, man. Some of the bums that have gotten Northwestern diplomas <laughs> over the year. I guess. I'm sorry. All right. Um, so uh, he wrote, he said, to the students who invited me, thank you. I am honored. To the students who object to my presence, to my presence, well, you've got a point. I too would have chosen someone else. I've been lucky enough to enjoy a comfortable measure of success in my various careers, but let's be honest. 
I've been virtually everything you can't respect. A lawyer, a mayor, a major market news anchor, and a talk show host. Pray for me. If I get to heaven, we're all going. I love that last line, David. Just if I get to heaven, we're all in. <laughs> well, I guess I'm pulling for him then. You know, God, yeah. Godspeed, Jerry. I hope you're doing well out there. The check thing reminds me of. Um, remember when the the first World Trade Center attack terrorists tried to get the deposit back on the van that they used? Yes. 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 It's like, be uh, careful with your paper trail, people. You know what I mean? Yes. Be, be careful with the paper trail. Um, all right, uh, let's move on to the real important uh, news of the day. And uh, we'll start with the column you wrote uh, for Newsweek. Excellent column. Great lead again. Uh, you should forget the political science stuff and just become a pundit, dude. You are funny. Uh, anyway, it, it has to do with Joe Biden's reelection. Uh, and um, he announced he's running for reelection. That, like, was a one day story. You know, David, I mean, the way that the tumult of our times, that's it. It was it was on the page one day and we moved on. I mean, Donald Trump's rape trial doesn't even make it to the Sun Times. So, uh, you know, what's a reelection bid? Uh, but the general theme of your essay is that in your humble opinion, it's not a great idea for Democrats that Joe Biden uh, is running for reelection. Uh, why don't you take the deep dive with listeners and explain why you feel that way? Sure. Um, well, first and most importantly, I never wanted Joe Biden to be the nominee. <laughs> so I just maybe I'm just having some trouble letting it go. But um, anyway, it's you know it's a it's a different time now, right? Um, he he won the presidency, um, and he's had a you know an up and down first term. I think he's relatively well liked by Democrats, but um, most people in surveys say that they don't want him to run again. Okay. And that's that's across. Both parties. Now, of course, they also say they don't want Donald Trump to run either. So um, we're going to get this. We might get this rematch that will please no one on on either side. Which is like, I don't understand, man. We get to pick our nominees, but we keep picking people that nobody wants. <sighs> okay, sure. Um, and it's it's not unusual for a president's primary voters to like flirt with other people or to tell pollsters they're not that happy with the person or they'd like to see somebody else run. And then they come around in the end. Um, and so that's, you know, that's what I expect to happen with most Democrats here. It's not like I think he's going to bleed Democratic support because of these polls. But um, I think he has some unique vulnerabilities that are worth thinking about as we head into 2024. Um, first and most importantly is his age. Um, he's he's going to be 81 on Election Day 2024. Um, he doesn't look or sound great to me. I mean... Yeah, I mean, God, I hope I'm I hope I'm alive when I'm 80 and able to run for president. You know, God bless. Probably be better shape I'm going to be. But, you know, the, the man is asking for a, a pretty solemn responsibility here. And that responsibility is probably going to be to keep Donald Trump out of office again. Um, and uh, uh, the reality is, is he, he was uh, a pretty weak campaigner in 2020. And some of it got papered over because of the pandemic. Um if you remember, we had remember we had the like the video DNC and uh, <laughs> um, Biden would do these like social distance events where there were like ten people and it was really weird and awkward. Um, meanwhile, Dingbat over here is like crisscrossing the country doing super spreader <laughs> rallies. You know, and just doesn't yeah. care. Um, 
<laughs> oh, yeah, I remember. Mm-hmm. America, I am your voice and your and your virus. Um, <laughs> COVID, like yeah. a month before the election. <laughs> oh, man. 2020, am I right? What yeah, a year. 2020. Uh, year. But anyway, he's, you know, he's not going to be able to, to, to do some of these things this time around, right? There's going to be an expectation of, of more sort of groundwork, um, a, a different ground game than the, the one he ran in 2020. And he's going mean, to he's, he's have the expectations of being on a plane every day, flying here, flying there. And it's, you know, the mythology is he campaigned from his basement. Okay, it's not true. He did, he did lots of events, right? He traveled. Um, uh, and, you know, he was more than, more than physically up for it. But I think that the expectations are going to be higher this time. He also didn't really give any press conferences in 2020. And everybody was like, well, I mean, you don't want to die, right? I mean, it's like, oh, it's just a little bit less. I mean, do you remember? This was my signature fear of the 2020. There's a pre-vaccine, right? And I was like, just don't, please, just don't breathe. Like, no one breathe on Joe Biden. Yeah, <laughs> like, I remember you saying, no one, yeah. be, like, I was terrified he was getting COVID to die before the election. Um, and uh, he didn't. But he got COVID later, like we all did. So, um, but anyway, so there's there's the, there's the the risk of something catastrophic happening. Um, and I don't want to be cold about this, but when you're 81 your chances of dying at any given time are about five times higher than someone who's like, um, you know, 55 to 64, uh, about 10 times higher than people in their forties. Um, and, um, y- you know, you're, you're really, you're rolling the dice here that nothing bad will happen between the convention and the election or nothing bad will happen between when the ballots are printed and the election. Um, and if he runs with Harris again, um, I think the risk is doubly so, um, you know, I think I think Harris has gotten kind of a raw deal from the press and from everyone. <laughs> she just got stuck with a bunch of terrible jobs, and now everyone dislikes her. However, <laughs> and I'm not saying none of it's her fault, okay? But I, I don't think she's really gotten a fair shake out there. But the reality is, if Biden dies in like September or October of 2024, or becomes incapacitated in October of 2024, the, the DNC technically has the right to pick a new nominee, okay? But for for all practical purposes, the ballots are printed you're voting for Biden and Harris. Okay. Like the, the DNC can't really go in there and be like, actually, um, you're actually voting for Gretchen Whitmer. Never mind. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like for all practical purposes, it's obviously it would obviously be Harris. Okay. Um, she would, she would be running as the de facto presidential candidate, even though her name is under the VP slot. And then she would become the president. Um, if she won. Um, but my, my fear is that her, her polls are very bad. <laughs> like, like her, her matchup polls with Trump are terrible. Um, her approval ratings are terrible. And if she were to run in the primaries and win, um, you know, over the course of 12 months or so, I think that she could, I think she could rectify some of that, um, just by virtue of having a chance to unify the party and people see more of her, maybe they'll like her a little bit more. Um, uh, of course, it is a country full of misogynists and racists. So I don't know. I don't know how far we're going to get here. But the reality is, like, um, we would be entrusting the ticket to someone who's not very well liked at all. Um, and who I'm I'm not convinced would get through the primaries as as the nominee as things stand right now. Um, and so that's a that's a double risk. It's a risk that he took when he when he brought her on to the ticket with him. Um, and now he's running as an octogenarian. Um, just, you know, hoping against hope that nothing happens to him. Um, mm. and that's to say nothing of the, the sort of like what it's going to look like to have him on 
on the trail. Um, I just, I, I sit back and I imagine what it would be like to have a young, healthy, vigorous person like J.B. Britsker, <laughs> you know, like, uh, like somebody who's like a little more with it, you know, like hmm. I don't buy, you know, I'm not saying Biden has dementia or whatever, but like, he's just old. He's, he's, he's an elderly man, um, who is, you know, should be 14 years into his retirement, <laughs> but he's the president. Yeah, um, president. and I just think that the, um, the contrast between Biden and, you know, anybody but Trump on the other side would be pretty, would be pretty telling. Um, and everybody's assuming that he'll just beat Trump again. And I, I'm not, it's not a slam dunk to me. Um, I, I think Trump has a, you know, 2016, um, odds of winning, you know, that, like whatever Nate Silver, speaking of Nate Silver, <laughs> <laughs> whatever Nate Silver would would hang a, a number on it, probably be twenty five or thirty percent, and that's a huge risk for uh, for us, for the country, for for the things that would happen during those four years. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm not going to sit here and say I can clairvoyantly tell you that Whitmer would do better, or Prisker would do better, or whoever. We don't know that. Um, what we do know is that people don't particularly love Joe Biden. His greatest asset in 2020 was that he didn't. Um, he, he didn't activate the kind of negative polarization um, for independent-minded Republicans that might have cost him the election. Right? Um, he also didn't inspire people on our side um, to to turn out in the way that I think we could have gotten with a, a different candidate. So that's the, the 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 long and the short of it is like if it's Trump, I think people are underestimating his, uh, Trump's chances against Biden. If it's not Trump then I really think we're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. You know, like I think DeSantis is overrated. Um, I'm not sure he's going to make it to Iowa, but there's other people out there that could, that could run and could win. Um, if it, if the Republic, if the Republicans could just get their primary voters in a room and, and just be like, stop doing stupid stuff. <laughs> <laughs> no, they can't. So, uh, but yeah. you know, they could nominate like Tim Scott. Right. And, and that would be a challenge for Biden. Right. Like, um, some of these people that look good in, in April of 2023 will be exposed over the course of a national campaign, right? Quickly, you know, remember when Eric Swalwell ran for president? Mm, wow. <laughs> remember when, uh, uh, what was his name? Bill de Blasio? Yes. Uh, I remember the debates in 2019, yeah. the summer of <laughs> All great shows. We would gather after a debate to uh, figure out who the winner was. Remember, there were two separate debates. Yes. Couldn't fit everybody on one stage. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, all these guys, they look at themselves in the mirror and they dust off their lapels and they see president, you know, president de Blasio, you know, um, and not all of them are cut out for a national campaign for, you know, for reasons that become pretty obvious when you stick them on a stage like that. Um, but, uh, I think that Biden would have a lot of vulnerability to a more traditional Republican who's not a Trump or a DeSantis, um, <laughs> a Republican who's not Donald Trump and not like at war with America's yeah. um, favorite cartoon maker all the time. You know, <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> who should we pick on today, Governor? How about Disney again? Let's go after Disney. Wow. What is? I mean, what is this dude thinking? So um, anyway, I, I'll throw it back to you. I, I think that um, I, I think that Biden. Would, which would have done everyone a favor if he had stepped aside. You know, that's, well, that's the long and the short of it. I'll concentrate on the, this one uh, part of the, your essay. Uh, 
that you sort of alluded to uh, on your riff, and that is the last election was a lot closer than the 7 million vote gap between uh, Biden and Trump. As all of Americans have come to realize, we have this insane electoral college system, uh, and uh, it's whoever gets the most electoral votes uh, who wins, uh, unless, of course, Trump loses. That man's name is Trump, and he loses, and then they just change the rules just to make automatically make him the president or try to anyway. Uh, and as you pointed out, in uh, the the key swing states that went Biden's way, the difference, if you combine, was I believe I believe I'm doing this number forty four thousand votes, which is very narrow. Uh, and uh, so, uh, I I that's an important takeaway. Um, I believe. Having said that, that Biden proved that he can beat Trump. Uh, and when you said uh, his greatest asset, meaning Biden's greatest asset, is, um, I forget what you said. I, I scratched that out and I wrote, his greatest asset is that he is not Donald Trump. And the Republican Party seems determined to nominate Donald Trump. Uh, it's pretty obvious that he will be the nominee unless he passes on. And even then, he may still be the nominee with the Republicans, you know. <laughs> so, I don't. I I I I feel we're in this bizarre world, uh, David, where it's just, uh, it's just the monster emerging from the lagoon, the black lagoon, Donald Trump, and he has to be put down, defeated time and time again, uh, until this insane cult moves from the scene. Uh, and it really doesn't matter. Everything you said is absolutely true, uh, but it does. I don't. Know, I don't know if it matters. I don't care if Joe Biden campaigns in a traditional sense. In fact, I, I'd love to get your thoughts on this. I don't know if I sent you the article. The New York Times had a story, a classic New York Times story about a week ago, where they talked about how Joe Biden hadn't had as many press conferences as any president since Calvin Coolidge. Uh, and uh, it's clear that they just want to keep him from live engagements with the questioning press. Uh, and some strategist for Biden openly said, he goes, in this day and age, you don't need the middleman of the press. You could just go around the press. We learned that from Trump. I don't know if he said it, but that's what they learned. Uh, and so he doesn't need press conferences. He doesn't need. He, in fact, I would think most voters would just say, just stay in a white. It would be like 2020. Stay in a White House. Don't overexert yourself. I don't want you getting the sweat. It's OK. We, <laughs> yeah, don't go. Don't get on a bike like Biden. Got, remember when remember he got on a bike and I think he fell. I think he went when he's on a bike. So I. Under normal circumstances, everything you're saying would be alarming, but these are such abnormal times. I'll repeat what I said at the beginning. Donald Trump, who is leading the way, probably would be the Republican nominee, is on trial for rape as we speak. Usually, that would be the end of someone's political career. It seems to have fired up his base, law and order base. So I, I, I'm quite not sure how to respond. Yes, he could have dementia. Do I care? No. Okay. I, I voted for one guy. I've told you this, John Stroger. He was in a coma. I happily voted for John Stroger. <laughs> Would I vote for Joe Biden if he were in a coma? Yes. If the opponent was Donald Trump, I must concede that. Now, I do want to get into the thing about Kamala Harris. I'd like you to take a deep dive in that because sometimes I think, now you may say I'm too cynical, that Joe Biden encourages 
this disparaging view of Kamala Harris because it just makes him look good. And uh, in contrast, because it just baffles me that anyone would have an opinion about her one way or the other. She's the vice president. I, I don't recall... Like, did people have bad opinions of Al Gore during the Clinton years? Did they have bad opinions of, I can't even remember who the vice, I'm momentarily blanking on who the vice president was during the, George, oh, Dick Cheney, how can I forget? So <laughs> I put it out of my shot mind. Anyone, so that's good, you know? Yeah, lately. Uh, so anyway, take the deep dive on what's the hatred for Kamala Harris really all about. Sure. Let me let me start by just saying how much I dislike the office of the vice presidency. Um, if, you, if you ever watched the HBO show Veep, um, it is a wonderful distillation of the complete pointlessness of the vice presidency in our, in our political system. Um, other than breaking ties in the Senate, um, it's there's not really any particular reason to have a deputy to the president. Um, and the, the interesting thing about Harris is that she doesn't seem to be like in Biden's inner circle. You know, she does not appear to be one of his chief advisors. Um, and so as someone on the outside, she's, she's getting tasked with things that, um, that are just, they're tough problems to solve. Like there's no way to make yourself look good when you're on immigration, um, when Congress can't produce uh, any kind of legislation to address the problems that you're, you're tasked with dealing with. Um, and so for Biden, I think, did, are you, are you, did you watch the wire? You a wire guy? Okay. Remember the end of season one? Um, when, when they, um, figure out McNulty was doing something wrong and the, and the, the superintendent comes in and it's like, Hey, Jimmy, where don't you want to go? Because they're going to reassign him. Like, where don't you want to go? And he's like, I'm afraid of water. So just please don't do that. And the last shot of the season is him as like a, a water cop, you know? <laughs> Right. So I, I imagine this all going like Biden by me, like Kamala, <laughs> what don't you want? You know, and she'd be like, immigration, please just don't give me immigration. He's like, what a great idea. You're on immigration. Go have at it. Um, and so I think she's really, dis- she's really struggled to find a, a policy space for herself. Um, they're not getting any coverage, um, in, in what little coverage she gets. It's like when she makes a gaffe or, you know, just says something, um, that's not great. And, and otherwise she's just sort of like a non-entity. Right. Um, and, um, I think that's kind of a waste (laughs) because the vice presidency, when you win the presidency, when your party wins the presidency, whoever you pick to be the vice president has like an extremely good chance of running for president. Um, and then winning your party's nomination because they will the next time around have the highest name idea of of anybody in the field. Um, unless you're disgraced, (laughs) Uh, twice impeached former president decides to run again. Um, in which case, sorry, Mike Pence, <laughs> it's not going to be you uh, for a variety of reasons, including that your disgraced former president tried to murder you, um, and you're still, um, you know, trying to kiss his ass like a just the most pit- like most pitiful man on earth. The the, the Donald Trump thing is like uh, you know, like in a horror movie where it's like you know the villain has spent the whole movie just killing half the cast, and then they finally there's the there's that penultimate confrontation with the killer. And the hero like knocks the killer out. They're like, all right, we're good. I'm going to turn around and do some exposition or, or hug someone or kiss. People are always kissing in high pressure situations in movies. I'm like, you just like, you just fell down a cave and got like eaten by monsters. Like you're not going to, you're not going to kiss right now. Like, what are we doing here? I have terrible breath. Come on. 
Um, anyway, you know, Republicans had to, we all had a chance, you know, like Republicans could have killed him. You know, they walked away. They were like, oh, I guess he's dead. I'm right. Um, you know, Merrick Garland and Jack Smith could have killed him, but I don't, I don't know what's going on there. <laughs> They're just taking their time, uh, just connecting all the, all the T's and dotting all the I's. And by the time that happens, he'll be president again. You know, uh, it'll be like, they'll submit the Jack Smith report like the day before the inauguration. <laughs> <laughs> like, yep, he did it. He did all that stuff. Uh, nothing we do now. So, you know, God save the queen, bring him in. So, um, yeah, but Harris is a liability. I mean, I just, I'll just level with you. Um, she's, I don't think she's a drag on the ticket. Um, although you certainly could squint and wish that the VP was somebody from a swing state. <laughs> and, um, but you know they're they're just uh, I I think there was there wasn't a, a lot of great options in 2020 that would have ticked all these boxes and I feel like Biden kind of he kind of made a promise right about who he was going to pick um, he was going to pick a woman and um, and he did that and you know like you can't argue she's not qualified really she's like a two term senator I mean it's like come on so um, but the but the polls are the polls you know what I mean um, and there's you know this was a lesson for 2016 too, right? It was kind of like, man, you know, like people should like Hillary Clinton more than they do, but they just don't, you know? Um, and ultimately you got to give the people what they want. <laughs> if you want to win, that's, that's the reality. And, um, and so I have a lot, I have a lot of concern about um, sort of Harris becoming the nominee by default or inheriting that slot. And, and not being able to fire people up the way <clears throat> the way that we would like. And she is, again, I don't think this is fair at all. Like, I don't think this is her fault, but she is a negative polarization lightning rod. You know, um, it's like, you know, people on the right trying to scaremonger about old Joe Biden, you know, Joe Biden's coming for your guns. I'm like, no, he's not. If he is, it'll take him like nine years to get there. You know, what I mean? like it's, it was very slowly. He's not, if he's coming for your guns, it's going to be a while. You know, you got time. Have some tea and toast, um, but but like you know, the right Fox News always said they love to put pictures of like minorities, in particular, I mean, not, not the worst than a minority woman up there on the screen. You know, like how many times they put the squad up every single night? Uh, it's in all their attack literature, and she's just you know uh, she's going to be very vulnerable to that. Again, not at all fair. And if all this happens, like it's our job to <laughs> to get out there and stick up for it, you know. But uh, I, I certainly would prefer to have somebody else in that slot for this kind of existential election. Because if this dude went, can you imagine if Donald Trump becomes the president again? I know it's like, we don't want to think about it, right? But like, think about it. Like this dude's going to be well, out for blood. Um, well, I, that's why I think, it, never say never, but that's why the uh, odds against him are he is the issue in any election he is the issue uh and america has to come face to face uh with this decision putting him back in power um and again he's on trial for rape in new york city just want to remind america that very credible uh, witness, Eugene Carroll. Very forceful testimony in court. Uh, uh, under the counterpunch of Donald Trump's lawyer doing the cross. 
who lost his own cool in uh, in the courtroom scene and had to be chastised by the judge. And he is also uh, the man who tried to engineer a coup uh, to defy the voters' will in 2020. Those are pretty enormous obstacles to overcome for Donald Trump, who eked out a victory, uh, electoral victory in 2016 over an exceedingly unpopular uh, Clinton clan. You got to put Bill in there with Hillary uh, and um, did not even win the popular vote. So I, I believe everybody's correct to say he did it once. He could do it again. I'm just saying if you're an odds maker in Vegas and you're putting the odds together, these are big obstacles to overcome. So you're asking a swing voter, the the quintessential David Axelrod swing voter in suburban wherever, doesn't matter. It's a suburb somewhere. Uh, this is David Axelrod and Rahm Emanuel's most, most important uh, voter. Uh, if that person is going to say, no, I think I'm going to vote for the guy who tried to engineer a coup and raped a woman in New York because... Inflation. I don't like Kamala Harris. You know, I, I, I just, I, uh, I, I don't know. I, uh, it's, it's a challenge for the and and let's add everything else to the list, like abortion. You know, let's add it. Just all the other things, the nutty stuff that Obama, uh, that the uh, uh, MAGA is doing. So I, I hear everything you're saying, and it's good to warn people and keep them on their toes and. That's how you activate voters in this country this day. You scare the hell out of them. You said something that's great. I wrote it down. We get to pick our nominee. We get to pick people we don't want. <laughs> and, and, and it's just like, yes, that's where we are. The Democrats decided we need someone really bland and uh, unthreatening uh, and middle America. We're going to nominate Joe Biden. We don't care if he's demented. We're just going to nominate. That was the reigning theory of Democrats in 2020, you know? That's how you beat Donald Trump. Well, it worked. They did beat Donald Trump. So now they're just going to go back to the <laughs> drawing board. Here's something else that's interesting. Bernie Sanders already said he's not running. Uh, the only guy running uh, right at the moment is uh, Robert Kennedy Jr., who is should be on the MAGA ticket. I mean, that guy is just <sighs> nuttier than nuts. So uh, that's... At least there's not going to be a credible threat in the Democratic primary that Joe Biden has to deal with. Like, you know, um, I don't think so. But I did. <laughs> I did see a poll with I, there's not there's two polls, actually. Um, and Kennedy has 19 and 21 percent against the sitting president. And it's a couple of reputable polls. Um, and that's either one of two things going on. One, people really are like to Joe Biden, please. Oh, come on, man. No. Or it's just like. So, I don't mean to be mean, but, you know, Democrats of a certain age. Yeah, boomers, they're so dumb. They don't, they think it's the dad. They're like, ah, Camelot's back. Let's do it. You know? <laughs> no, it's candidates. what it is. I don't mind saying it. <laughs> I'm always railing about my beloved boomers. They almost elected Paul Vallis, mayor of the city of Chicago. You're so scared, boomers. <laughs> you guys are so frightened. I'm so scared of yeah. everything. I mean, the kicker is <laughs> no. Kennedy was such a terrible president, too. Um, and then, you know, Ted, I, it's just like, I don't know, these dynasties, these political dynasties, like, they just don't do it for me. So, but uh, that, that to me speaks of some vulnerability um, for the president. And right. I agree with uh, you, right? Like, yeah. I think he's likely to win. I would like the polls to look better than they do right now. 
you know, and that's, I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Since you're mentioning polls, let's put, let's get to Nate Silver. Uh, it was announced this week, Nate Silver let it, let it loose that, um, uh, he's ending his tenure uh, with ESPN. I can't remember if they're cutting his staff so much. It doesn't matter. I can't remember the details. But Nate Silver, of course, has been um, riding a wave since the 2008 campaign. Uh, he's the guy who tells us what the polls mean. Uh, he's not a pollster, but he tells you what the polls mean. He's a numbers geek. He started off uh, analyzing baseball. Uh, and then he went to politics and he turned it into an ex, uh, exceedingly lucrative career. Uh, so I want you, I know you might have a lot of thoughts on this. We've talked so much about polls. You said the polls are the polls. Uh, and um, I've got, I'm all over the map when it comes to polls and their accuracy, um, uh, particularly after the 2016 election, which Nate Silver got wrong, I might add. Uh, he said the greater probability based on the polls is that Hillary Clinton would win. Oops. Um, so your thoughts on the legacy of Nate Silver? Sure. I mean, over the past few years, Nate Silver has become really annoying. Um, and I think that that transition into being an annoying, like, you know, radical centrist Twitter type person contributed to a loss of institutional and popular support for his position there. You know, this is, this is Disney. <laughs> Disney's everywhere. I mean, it's like the Forrest Gump of, of politics in 2023. Um, <clears throat> you know, Disney, Disney asked a bunch of his staff and he's like, all right, fine. I'm out of here when my contract's up. And you know, that's, I mean, in a, in a macro sense, like who cares? I'd be like, like journalist has to get a new job. Like that's what a shock in the year 2023. <laughs> but, um, I think in the, if you take, if you take the long view, um, and you, you kind of bracket Nate, Nate Silver's transition to being an annoying Twitter personality during the pandemic. Um, I, I think that he, I think that he has left a legacy of, um, forcing us to be a little bit more discerning in our political analysis um, or forcing us to link our political analysis to, to some kind of data, you know, whether that's a, you know, a single survey or <clears throat> an aggregate of surveys, people were just not really doing what he was doing um, in 2008. Like, like real clear politics would produce a, a polling average. Okay. But, but silver popularized it in a way that I don't think anybody else could have done um, because he, you know, he got so many of the states right in 2008 and 2012. And then he became this kind of guru. He wrote the signal and the noise, which was a pretty good book. You know, I learned, I'm not a, I'm not a math guy, <laughs> I don't know if that's obvious, but I learned a lot from that book. Um, and I've learned a lot about what to, you know, what to think about an individual poll, um, how to read cross tabs, um, how to situate a poll within a broader context. Um, and I think part of his problem as, as a prognosticator became his models became so complicated um, and opaque and it's sort of hard to understand <clears throat> why that he was doing some of these things that it lost the simplicity of what he was doing in, in 08 and 2012, which was much more, it wasn't solely this, but it was much more just like, this is a polling average. <laughs> this is, this is how you produce a polling average. This is like, I'm, I'm going to adjust based on, the biases of the pollsters as I see them. But, you know, in 2016, he was like, the new model is like, how many 
10 point New York Times headline fonts were in that year and all this stuff that was like that has nothing to do with anything man I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing here there was the deluxe model the polls only model six, six different models going on the site and I think it detracted from the um, the real you know two or three key insights that I think that he imparted to people who study politics um, which is one like you can't make analysis just by like huffing vibes and like looking at lawn signs you know um maybe lawn signs matter in an aldermanic race you know we're like i'm seeing a lot more deb silverstein signs here i don't see any uh, this doesn't look good um <laughs> but in a national campaign it's just reporters just running around their own neighborhoods being like man i don't know anybody voting for obama <laughs> he's toast um and so he he pushed back really hard on that kind of analysis and i think for the for the good um and in 2016 you know yeah, the thing he said had a less chance of a lower chance of happening happened. However, he was the only mainstream prognosticator pollster with a with a reputable site that anybody knew who gave any kind of decent chance to Trump winning the electoral college and losing the popular vote. Like his model gave that a 15% chance of happening, I think. And so that was a big part of what his model gave Trump a third, I think. If memory serves, it was like 30 or 31% on election day, it gave Trump a 30% chance of winning. And, you know, the problem with that kind of modeling um, is that it's unfalsifiable. You know what I mean? Because if he gets it right, he's like, I'm right. If he gets it wrong, he's like, well, <laughs> I said there was a 30% chance of this thing happening, and it happens, you know? Yeah. And that's, it's frustrating, but it is also the nature of odds, <laughs> right? Yes. And so he got his start in baseball which produces more data than, than any other sport, right? Um, you've got batted ball data, stat cast data. Where does the ball go? Maybe, maybe we can show some of this data to the White Sox. What is going on over there, man? But um, <laughs> I guess the problem wasn't just Tony La Russa. You were right about that. Yeah. I so um, scapegoat. Go ahead. But, uh, um, you know, he, he was, he was right in the sense that he was like, look, I told you this thing could happen. I didn't say it was definitely going to happen. I still thought Hillary Clinton had a better chance of winning than losing. But he was the only person out there being like, whoa, everybody, you know, you had the HuffPost um, model gave Clinton 99.8% chance of winning. And um, Sam Sam Wang, who doesn't really even do this anymore, he was so humiliated by this, <laughs> had to go eat a bug on national television. Um, you know, he, his his model was up in the high 90s. And so Silver was really the only one saying like, look, man, I know, I know you libs do not want to hear this, but this dude can win. Um, and uh, a lot of us didn't listen to him. So um, I personally, I'm going to miss 538 um, as an institution. Um, I'm not really going to miss him anymore because he's become sort of a, a little bit of a gadfly in his public personality. Um, but I, I will miss the site. I hope that some something or someone arises to take its place um it's i just this cycle of like these websites and they we all subscribe and read them and then it's just like really they they killed grantland for no reason on espn they were just like i don't like it anymore bye <laughs> it was like he was it was the only internet um site in the whole country producing long-form sports journalism and it was amazing it was an amazing site the ESPN just woke up one day and was like, eh, I don't like the inputs and outputs here. You're all fired. Um, and so they just did this to them too. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. I've, 
I, I guess I have a more positive take on Nate Silver than, than some people. Well, do. You have a good, a positive uh, take on Nate Silver. Here's my thing. Uh, like, Nate Silver devoided himself, just stayed out of the whole uh, issue of who was who would be a better leader for the country. Okay, just he just this is just the facts. These are just the numbers. This is I'm just I'm and and I've I've taken that. Like I always ask people, if you're an odds maker in Vegas, don't tell me who you want to win. Tell me who you think will win. Okay, and I'm really just channeling Nate uh, Silver. As such, he was a lousy odds maker. Thirty percent chance uh, is you better get good odds on that bet before you make that bet. So the fact that he was a little better than, I don't know, this other guy, Wang, it says nothing to me. It's just like a lot of guys lost money if they followed your bet on Vegas, unless they got odds. I don't know if Vegas was giving those kinds of odds. It's just like, okay, it's a 30% chance, so you're going to have to give me some good odds to get me to bet, take that 30% chance. Uh, so to me, uh, that's not great. The only thing he can be judged on since he is exempt from uh, having any kind of responsibility for who we elect, okay? If he's exempt from making any kind of v value as to whether Donald Trump's position on, let's say, the environment is better or worse for the world than Joe Biden's. If he's exempt from that, the only thing he can be judged on is the numbers. Did you make money if you bet the way he told you to bet? And the answer is no. And oh wait, everybody said Biden was Obama's going to win, so you weren't that great. In 2012, pretty much everybody said Obama's going to win, so you're not that great. Okay, you got every single state correctly, but big deal, you know. Oh sixteen, that's where the tire hits the road, my friend. <laughs> yeah, and that's where you failed. Okay, I don't want to go uh, Giannis on you. I don't know if you saw that uh, that great exchange between Giannis and Milwaukee Bucks and the reporter. I, I won't go there right now. Uh, that's so. That's kind of my take uh, on Nate Silver. Uh, and yes, he has become a caricature himself, and it is uh, annoying. But I will say this about the polls: polls are polls. David, you and I have talked so much about the accuracy and the accuracy of polls. You know, they're still pretty damn good. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they got Nate, Nate Silver. All he does is he set up an algorithm to, to like, interpret all the polls, and he's pretty right usually because the polls are right. And we just did this election here in Chicago. The poll, almost every single – there's so many stories about, like, polls that are corrupt, that are propaganda tools. But by and large – no poll show Paul Vallis with more than 48% of the vote. That was his – no poll. At no point in that election cycle did a poll say Vallis was over 50. And guess what? He got 48% of the vote, and he lost the election. And I walk away going, these freaking polls. Pretty good. <laughs> Pretty good. And that's a David Ferris line because you said that all throughout the 2020 and 22 cycle. Bad mouth the polls all you want, but they're pretty, they're pretty accurate. They're pretty accurate. And we, you know, we tend to remember the misses more than remember all the times that the polling averages were pretty good, you know, and sometimes a polling average in a close race is not really going to be able to tell you who's going to win. Right? It'll give you a sense of the margin. And in, in the Chicago mayor's race, um, I actually have a former student who, who operates one of those, uh, firms, uh, the 1983 labs, if you saw those, uh, 
those polls. But, um, yeah, they did pretty well. And I, I, you know, I think there was a bunch of polls at the end showing, you know, for, uh, 48 Vallis, 46 Johnson, that kind of thing. Right. And it's like, that's a lot of undecideds. And guess what? They broke for Johnson. Right. That's it was. And so I, I think the polls did great there. Um, but I do think if, if there's a negative to the legacy here, um, it is a reduction of politics, just to polling. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're right about that. Um, there is a heart and soul and a purpose to politics that gets lost in political data journalism. Like it really gets lost, you know, um, I assign my intro students in political science and essay, uh, from a book called in defense of politics. Um, and it's always so shocking to them because <laughs> they come in with so much cynicism and I'm like, actually the, you know, the enterprise of politics is noble. Like, this is how we avoid killing each other, right? This is how we resolve disagreements without violence, usually, you know? Um, and to think of politics, the, uh, the enterprise of politics, the vocation of politics, as just being reduced to, like, a horse race number in a poll that gets splashed on the front page, um, that's depressing, and it sucks out some of the character of politics in a way that I think is not great for people, especially for people who are just coming into the political world. Um, and they think, okay, so like, so it's just, so it's just about the power. And then the only thing we're going to talk about in the run up to the election is like, who's going to win the election. Um, I think it has led to a, a sort of hyper focus on predictions and how accurate your predictions are. And, um, to the, to the detriment of what is supposed to be the content of politics, which as you noted is about, the issues, right? Like if we'd focus more on issues in 2016 rather than the polls and rather than, you know, Hillary Clinton's uh, email server management practice, uh, there wouldn't be a 6-3 conservative majority on the Supreme Court right now, you know? Um, and for all the column inches devoted to those kinds of things, to both the polls and to the emails, I think we'd be better served by stepping back from that a little bit, you know? That's so true. And there, and uh, Nate Silver's contribution uh, has been to the obsession with polls. Uh, and uh, I don't want to vilify him and make him a scapegoat for this stuff, but that's what his career was staked on. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so that is a very telling point that you just made. I think it's it's one we should, you know, consider. Not, not that it's going to change anything. We'll still be... Like, people always... Like, who drop in and out of politics? I'll be obsessively following all the ins and the outs of, let's say, the Chicago mayoral race... Uh, and they'll just go, what are the polls show? <laughs> so I always laugh. <laughs> why don't you look it up yourself? Why are you asking? Why are you always ask me? What am I, Wikipedia? I mean, <laughs> that's the, my first reaction. Uh, but that, they don't care about any. What are the polls show? And there's, there's always that in Chicago. People in Chicago love to vote for what, the perceived winner, which is a really strange Chicago thing that uh, we won't go into. All right. Um, we'll close with the a very brief discussion of Joe Manchin. We're going to hold off till another time uh, the debt ceiling uh, debate that's going on, which will really get into the substance of issues. Uh, but I have a feeling we're only at the outset of that. And the next time you come on the show, we'll be in the, really in the thick of things. Uh, a recurring theme uh, on these conversations that I've had with David that have gone on now for uh, probably seven years uh, is that uh, Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia is less a U.S. senator to Dave Ferris uh, and more a nightmare. Uh, and uh, you've actually told some pretty funny stories about waking up 
going to sweat thinking the entire future of the Senate's going to come down to whether Joe Manchin votes with the Dems or the Republicans. He's apparently going to run for re-election in 2024. It is such a scene in the state of West Virginia, guys. You are insane, West Virginia. Uh, so uh, he, the front runner, I guess, for the Republican primary is the sitting governor who used to be a Democrat, not unlike uh, Joe Manchin. But he's being challenged from a, a MAGA guy who says he's th- the governor's not MAGA enough. So there's a possibility that MAGA will beat <laughs> the most winnable candidate. If there's a luckier politician in America than Joe Manchin. Meanwhile, Manchin is like, upset at Biden who like I read this convoluted uh, Washington Post story that was explaining why Manchin is mad at Biden I could find no discernible reason for him to be mad at Biden has done nothing Manchin's ego is so enormous David Ferris yeah I'm a, so your thoughts on uh, the nightmare of Joe Manchin I think Manchin you know you know the new um, sort of emissions rules that the, the EPA put out <laughs> two weeks ago yeah um, yes that are gonna you know, I think dramatically accelerate the transition to electric vehicles. And Joe Manchin is such a megalomaniac that he takes a, a, a sort of world historical transition from one form of energy consumption to another as a personal affront to him. You know, like what's in this for Joe Manchin? You know, wait, <laughs> like, what? what Consider the gas, you know. <laughs> consider the gas. No one, well, no one think of the gasoline. The poor gasoline gets left in the earth because uh, we're, we're driving clean vehicles. Um, yeah, this guy, man, Joe Manchin, we almost made it through a whole episode without Manchin or cinema. Yeah. That would have maybe the first time since the <laughs> Ukraine episode that we did that. So, yeah. um, but, uh, yeah, if it's Jim justice, if the, if the GOP primary voters of West Virginia have any sense at all, which I'm not sure that they do, um, they will, they will, they will pick justice. Who would, I think be a pretty formidable challenger for, for Manchin. Um, <laughs> And if he does lose, if Manchin does lose, and yeah. if we have enough seats in the Senate, I could care less. Um, like if we have a majority with you know without him, then that's fine with me. But um, if he does lose, it'll be such an irony because he has spent the last three years, last six years, really protecting his image as a centrist, um, his image as a as a maverick who doesn't just roll over for whatever Chuck Schumer wants or whatever Nancy Pelosi wants. Um, and all, all on the theory that these votes and that these public positions that he's taking will protect him from just the basic gravity of partisanship. And the basic gravity of partisanship in West Virginia is very bad for Democrats. You know, <laughs> it's, a, it's a landslide Republican state. Um, and so the, the last few years really are, are they're setting up a, cl- a clear test of this proposition, right? If you stab your own party in the back enough times, can you win? <laughs> can you win re-election in a state where the partisanship is heavily in the other direction? Um, uh, you know, I wish him all the luck in the world. But when you're drawing the sitting governor, who's pretty popular, that's your that's your worst draw there. That's who you don't want. It's like reminds me of uh, New Hampshire last year when Maggie Hassan um, could have drawn the sitting governor uh, Chris Sununu, who's very popular mysteriously. I have to ask the good people of New Hampshire why they keep electing Republican <laughs> governors, but uh, yeah. but he would have been a very you know he he, he very well could have beaten her, and instead she got this like this fruitcake, um, who, you know, just a just a crazy person, his, uh, Don Boldick, I think his name was. What a memory um, you have, good just memory, a, just a, yes. like a stark raving lunatic, you know, um, and so that's luck, 
that's luck right there, right? That's that's you're a lucky politician, Maggie. Um, and so we'll we'll see. I mean, I'm skeptical that Manchin can win. I mean, I feel like the importance of partisanship just keeps going up and up and up. Um, yeah. And he didn't win in a landslide last time in 2018 yeah. in, a, in a huge Democratic wave year. He, he kind of squeaked by. And so um, if I'm an odds maker, I'm not super bullish on Manchin's chances of keeping that seat. In which case, if he does go on to lose, I'm going to be so mad at him like all over again, you know, because yeah. I'm like, yeah, why don't you just do the right thing? You know, yeah. why don't you just do the right thing if you lose anyway? You know, it's like winning is not the most important thing. Every once in a while, you got to take a tough vote to achieve something. Yeah. And then face the voters. And if they reject you, they reject you. But at least you will have achieved something. You know, and it's like Manchin is just like never willing to take that risk. He's always just covering his own ass. So, yeah. yeah. Joe Manchin, ladies and gentlemen. That, that was a great riff. That's probably what we because that is a great riff. Uh, the notion that uh, he made all these horrific votes, uh, put us through all this agony uh, just to position himself, better position himself for re-election. And the the good citizens of West Virginia reject <laughs> his n- notion of bipartisanship. Even they say, no, there's no bipartisanship. Uh, <laughs> yeah, like it's so unfounded. I mean, seriously, I'm thinking about it laughing. I can't recall a MAGA person anywhere who champion the notion of bipartisanship they're all about denouncing anybody who's against them as a pedophile you know a radical loony you know communist (laughs) yeah so um yeah anyway all right david ferris uh it's a blast talking to you and uh i'm sure the next time you're on we'll be uh up to our eyeballs and conversation about Kevin McCarthy oh, man. and the lunatics uh, in the Congress who are trying to exact some kind of insane compromises from Joe Biden. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. The inmates are running yeah. the asylum over there, Ben. So um, it's, uh, but again, it's great to be here. Thanks again for having me on the show and I look forward to next time. All right. That's David Ferris. I'm Ben Jarofsky. Take care, everybody. Take care, everybody.